Personally, they're my little ad demons that follow me around on places that I don't want them. Like I think about maybe I've searched or saw an ad or something on Instagram for a product and then I go to eBay and like the whole side bar is filled with all these ads and they follow me and it's like, hey, you left this in your cart and it's my entire cart being shown to me on some other irrelevant thing. I'm like, oh, my little ad demons are here. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome back to the Commerce Collective podcast brought to you by Flywheel. Today, we're talking about the evolution of walled garments how advertisers should be thinking about measurement in the upgraded world of first-party data and the exit of third-party observability, and catios, and my self-titled ad demons. You'll see. I'm your host, Emma Irwin, a senior editor at Flywheel, and I have never been more ready to talk about walled gardens in advertising. Let's meet our guest for today. Hi, everybody. My name is Kirat Sharma, and my title is Chief Technology Officer at Flywheel Digital. Fancy, fancy. And you, in the past, worked for Amazon, if I'm correct. Can you tell me a little bit about that? I guess my past has two chunky jobs. The first was at a company called Gallup. They're well known for survey research and psychometric tools like StrengthsFinder and Q12. And I was a software engineer there. I think I did a stint of about seven-ish years. And then I was fortunate enough to get a job at Amazon where they'd begun working on a relatively nascent program called advertising. And then at some point, I had an opportunity to move to Boulder, and I came into contact with a fairly nascent Amazon Marketing Cloud team, and I was able to spend a little bit of time with them, and I just loved everything that was going on in that space and didn't want to work on anything else. And so I was fortunate to be able to shift focus and just spend time on AMC. And then, yeah, I joined Flywheel. I like the approach that Flywheel had in terms of being really customer-centric, where the most important thing was, are we helping our clients drive sales? That feels like a really simple, fundamental way to measure whether you're, you're being successful or not. And it really resonated with you know, the way that Amazon works, where it's, it's you know, are you being customer-obsessed and customer-centric in the decisions that you're making? And I think that reflects in the way Flywheel looks at media, which is, you know, media is a means to an end. And the end is, are we helping our clients with sales of their products? And uh, it, it's, a, it's a really nice way to look at how, if media is actually working or not. Beautiful. What is the last thing that you purchased on Amazon? I think household purchases count. So my wife purchased this. I assembled it. It is a catio. And so it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a cat patio. So it's a, a mesh cage, I guess, but it has platforms and lots of things and cat can just go into the catio and look around without fear of being uh, mauled alive by a hawk or some other, you know, raptor. And so that's, that's our last purchase was a catio. So your cat is thriving. This is good to hear. Yeah, she's living her best life <laughs> looking outside. <laughs> I want a catio. For me, I don't have a cat. But... <laughs> I would accept. Okay. The last question I'm going to ask you before we attempt to get into first party wall and gardens is I'm going to ask it now and then we'll come back to it at the end of the recording if that sounds good and all. But something that lives on your digital wish list, which means that you don't actually purchase it. And I'm going to guess that the catio was living on your cat's digital wish list for a long time if we're making things up. But 
something that just lives in a cart forever that you won't actually purchase and why, but we'll come back to it at the end if that sounds good. Okay. So I just got to like incubate the idea. Yeah. Okay. Got it. <laughs> Let it cook for the next however many minutes. So today we're getting into the evolution of walled gardens. And I know you're probably familiar with the term walled garden and then first party versus third party data, but I wanted Kirit to help make sure we were all on the same page here. So next he's going to break down how we got to this landscape of data living within walled gardens. At some sort of dawn of web browsing and even apps on phones, it was very easy to have an environment where, or, or a website where you could have Lots and lots of third parties. And those third parties were typically as a result of advertising. Sometimes they were there for web analytics or launching features and uh, you know, A-B testing and, and whatever else. But in general, third parties were very useful from an advertising perspective. And so if you were a website and you wanted to monetize it, you'd put some space that would become an ad. And then you would delegate that space to a very long chain of ad tech entities who would figure out how to fill that rectangular slot with an ad. And so this is really, you can follow this and you'll get to sort of how programmatic advertising eventually comes to pass. One of the underpinnings of all of this was third-party cookies. So when you go to a particular site, Emma's, Cadio's, that site can set a cookie for you so that it can recognize you the next time and show you the, you know, the same products that you were looking at the past time that you were there. But the ad tech entities that you choose to include historically could also recognize you. And they had a lot of observability around what you were doing on that site. And so if you had chosen to permit it by not sandboxing them in a certain way, they could look at the same products that you were looking at. And so these ad tech entities could develop a very detailed understanding of who you were without you ever actually knowing that you were in contact with them. As a customer, you may have just been in contact with Emma's Cadios. And now you've got this much more broad sort of blast radius of the people that came to understand you. And those ad tech entities, you know, curated these in a variety of ways. They'd create audiences that they could resell. They'd show you ads that were customized to your interests. And of course, they would measure the, the ads that you were shown in an effort to try and you know, conclude what the efficacy of those advertisements were. And so that was sort of the Wild West. There was a lot of visibility of a lot of customer behaviors on a lot of websites by a lot of third parties that you didn't know existed. You fast forward to sort of post lots of privacy explosions that happened in sort of the... 2015 to 2020 period. And you, you see, you know, lots of things that come to pass that, that are basically a reflection that this is not a good thing. So the European Union, uh, you know, they passed the GDPR, which is a collection of regulations that basically clamp down on what third parties can do and can't do and make it really difficult if you're a third party to have a bunch of data because now you've got to get consent and you've got to support deleting the data, a whole bunch of stuff. We also started to see really big privacy scandals. The Cambridge Analytica on, on Facebook was a really good example of where customers were really negatively surprised at how things that they were doing in one context seems to, seem to have suddenly manifested in a different context. And there was a lot more just being talked about. 
you know, you start to see articles and you start to see companies saying we lead with this privacy space. And so unsurprisingly, the way that we got to quote unquote wall gardens from an from advertising context was you, you had entities that could like economically or 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 they had a lot large enough scale, they could just decide to say, we're closing the this is not a thing we're doing. When we interact with our customers, that interaction is between us and our customers, or our customers and us. And there will be no array or cornucopia of third parties who are observing what's going on. We are now a wall garden. And these interactions that we're having, customer to Emma's Cadios, are a first party interaction. The customer is not surprised that Emma's Cadios knows what they've been browsing or buying or adding to their cart. And that's great. You can choose to make that sort of this wall garden interaction where nobody else gets to see it either. And so that's great because customers are not negatively surprised. They know exactly who they're dealing with. I think that's one of the ways in which you can explain a wall garden or a, or a first party garden. Of course, the ones that we know of today are Amazon and Netflix is a great example. Um, Google increasingly, uh, or just has been for a long time. Facebook, Meta, their properties. And then I think a lot of the other sort of retail media entities, the direction that they're heading to is certainly very similar, where even if they have third parties they work with, the nature of that relationship is such that the third parties are providing a service to them as opposed to just collecting data and building random products. And so, you know, if we think about Criteo as a, as a service that supports certain retail marketplaces, my, my bet is that in that context, Criteo or the trade desk or other third parties are steadily becoming service providers where the only thing that they can do is help the retail they're working with. They can't take that data and build some derivative product that would land up in some negative surprise for a customer who was on the retailer's site. Okay. Things are changing. I think based on everything we just heard, that's pretty clear. And of course, we know that with change in how we track consumer behavior and ad exposure, that means we have to change how and even what we're measuring that then determines success as an advertiser. So let's have Kira tell us about how these changes impact how we measure. I'll answer that in two parts. I think the first part, which is not a direct answer, is really important and oft neglected, which is these changes aren't necessarily about the death of the cookie or the death of the IDFA. These changes are really, everybody hates this negative surprise of, I was browsing on a certain site and now all this stuff has happened in a derivative manner with ad tech entities or whatever that I just didn't expect to be communicated with. And so I think it's important if you're looking at this space and you're going, is this the death of the cookie? Sure, but really, it's increasingly the death of third-party observability and the rise of customers and regulators and advocates going, interactions really ought to be first-party interactions. And the barrier for when a third party is allowed to view a first-party interaction has to be really, really high. It can't just be random consent notice on a website going whatever. I, I think everyone sees through that and the barrier and the, and the education that you need needs to be far higher. And we have really good examples about what education looks like for customers and advertising in the last couple of quarters, right? Like Netflix's education about how you will see ads now 
is is fairly clean. Like there's no ambiguity. You know what's going on. The plans that you sign up for say what's happening. The ads that are now showing up on Prime Video, really good education bar on that. And I think we're going to see examples of what the bar actually is. And I think, you know, a lot of these commodity things where it's like, hey, maybe there'll be a lot of third parties looking at what you're doing. Are you okay with this? Click here to say yes. I think everyone's going to see through that and be like, hold on, this is not that great. So that's one. It's really not just the depth of the cookie. It's, I think, the depth of widespread third-party observability in any form. Okay, so what does that mean for, for our advertisers? So way in which lots of measurement used to happen was driven by curating data sets that were teed to keyed by potentially a customer, some, some representation of a customer. And so you, know, you had industries like DMPs or CDPs where really that their goal was gather lots and lots of data across lots of different contexts, retail, advertising, whatever, and key it by some customer-grained identifier. And then at some point, merge all of it together to provide really good reporting on what happened with the customer. Did this advertising yield increased sales? Were there certain tracks of customers that did better than others? But notably, most of this measurement was happening a customer grade. And with the changes that we're seeing, where you have this diminished third-party observability, you have the rise of these first-party gardens. The direction is you get your insights at an aggregate and anonymous level. And so if your data sets that you use for measurement are keyed by a product identifier, an ASIN or a SKU of some kind, that's not going anywhere. That's here to stay. And the best way to get lots and lots of cool insights is to go really deep with the APIs that these retail marketplaces offer today. And so Amazon has a ton of APIs. Walmart has an excellent stack. And they, they offer ways to really understand many dimensions around what's going on with the product. And in both cases, or any retail marketplace for that matter, the APIs and data sets that you can accrue around media spend and media efficacy are also coming out increasingly aggregate and anonymous. And blending that on both ends, media to retail sales, is easiest done if you can link them on a product basis. And so knowing that your media spend was against product X, Product X was advertised in these geographies or to these types of audiences or whatever. And then blending that against the way that Product X actually sold or was out of stock or had deals or whatever else is it's not going anywhere. Like you will have that observability for a very long time because that data has nothing to do with one specific customer. It is aggregate and anonymous and it is very flexible in how it can be used. And it's the way in which everything is tending towards. And so when we think about how, how should we best help our clients, it's really how do we double down on that philosophy? And what are the what are the methods by which we can get into contact with that kind of data set? And so clean rooms, of course, are really, really a big deal for us because clean rooms have the same philosophy. They say, come on in build your own queries, think about what you want to ask and analyze. And as long as it conforms to a very basic set of principles, 
it will be allowed. And one of the most basic principles that most clean rooms tend to espouse is aggregate anonymous. You can compile a query or you can ask a question or you can try and conduct a, you know, something. And as long as it is not, as long as it complies with the notion that, that, that whatever you're doing is going to remain aggregate and anonymous, it will happily return something. And so that's great. I, you know, strongly suggest leaning heavily into APIs and, and clean rooms where you can get a lot of this intelligence and, and build up a lot of time trended history about how bulk media spend and product sales and, and other attributes of products work. We love a good discussion about clean rooms over here at Flywheel. So I asked Kirit to tell me more about how clean rooms tie into this bigger picture, especially when there isn't necessarily a clean room in existence for every single retail marketplace. If you're not already rolling up your sleeves and playing with a clean room because the retail marketplace you typically work with doesn't have one, you should. In the last sort of four-ish years, there's been so much advancement in how to make the underlying technology in a clean room a commodity. And we've seen AWS already launch AWS clean rooms. The recent LiveRamp acquisition of Habu was a really interesting signal. This is a space that will receive just ongoing increasing investment. And think of it as sort of a practice area that has lots of applications. And so within advertising, we're at the tip of the iceberg because there's so many marketplaces that have not yet gravitated to it and started implementing it. And then across industries and verticals, there are so many that haven't yet embraced it and opened up and sort of democratized the way in which they can work. And so I think we'll see clean rooms as a sort of skill set or practice area really get very vibrant over the next coming years. So that's one is embrace it, get good at it because it's coming um, and it's already here in some contexts. The second is we have a lot of visibility as operators on behalf of an advertiser. We have a lot of visibility about how media is bought. And so we, you know, we can do things like inventory forecasts, or we can do things like look deeply at where we bought media and a lot of attributes about that. But the part that we need increasing visibility around that I think we'll see a lot of innovation with is where's the line between a publisher and an advertiser really start and stop or finish or end? Today, Due to the way in which programmatic advertising work, the most that a marketer could do is think about some sort of private deal with the publisher and have that transacted through the ad tech stack of their choice. There's no sort of marketplace of publisher visibility, as far as I know, where as a marketer you go, this is the product outcomes that I'm really excited about, sales or consideration, you know, new to brand detail page views or whatever else. and I'd like to understand what pools of inventory there are that I could be tapped into that give me the opportunity to drive these outcomes. Where is the potential for me to move into is, it feels like a very open space right now. And I think that's a great area for clean rooms to innovate in because it's, I don't think it's a, here's the answer. I think it's a much more exploratory process and that's where clean rooms do a great job where they set out the data with clear protections and then let people go and explore. And so I'm excited about how that innovation happens too, where the 
sort of nexus of supply and demand is steadily reshaped also as a result of what clean rooms can bring into the equation. So now that we know the value of clean rooms and aggregate and anonymous data for measuring, I was curious about why we didn't just start out measuring digital advertising efforts this way from the beginning. You know, I entered this industry and generally my career about three years ago and have watched this upgrade in how we measure unfold this entire time, but I wasn't really around for what it was like beforehand. So naturally the question of why didn't it start this way came to me. It's just the way things evolved. I think it could be done and therefore it was deemed to be the right way to do it. And it was also sort of the promise of how digital addressability could work. You know, if you were buying on a newspaper or on linear TV, the best that you could do was a very coarse-grained demographic, you know, intersection. The promise of digital addressability was you can reach a person. And I think the sort of literalness with which that was understood and then built upon was very strong. And so at its heyday, you know, you'd see ad tech entities who would link, you know, all sorts of online identifiers to offline things and create really creepy advertising experiences that were reflective of the way in which digital address, addressability could really work and be intrusive. I, I think this new way of thinking through things is a much more healthy medium where there's just digital addressability, but against the entities that you choose to have it with, and it's not available for anybody. And so I think it was just like a very big innovation cycle where addressability was available and like programmatic advertising became nuts and awesome. And then there's sort of a reality check that, whoa, okay, maybe this isn't what everybody actually wants. And let's recalibrate a bit. And the addressability now within Wall Gardens actually makes a lot of sense. Would you say with where we are in this like upgrade that our big clients are otherwise known as like large advertisers are prepared for this and like ready for approaching their media in this direction going forward? No bias, but certainly I hope that. Well, of know, course, the ones we work with. I've, yeah. <laughs> the advisement that we provide is is very robust, I, I, I hope. And, you know, we, we have a good we have a good plan. And I know that there's a ton of people on, on the flywheel side that have been working very hard. I do think one one quick gut check, right, is if your entire strategy is predicated on a data set of known customers that you have accrued through some third-party basis, right? Like your, if your strategy is, I, I just go buy lots of data sets about lots of customers and then create these big, you know, customer pools as a third party, that's tricky. Really, the, the tide is changing and that looks increasingly risky on a day-to-day -day basis if you are not a first party. And so... Anybody doing this today, I'm sure, is doing the right thing with all the right consents and all the right data collection practices and all the right deletion and retention. That's great. But if you look at the last five years, 10 years, it has become more and more onerous. Before the last five years, you didn't have to have such a depth of consent. You didn't have to support data deletion. You didn't have to know, you didn't have to be able to trace lineage and support a whole bunch of opt-outs and such. That has really ramped up. And it's not pausing or slowing down. This ramp up is accelerating. And so if this is your model, you've had to incur this burden over the last five or six years. You should be well aware that the burden is going to go up, not down. And there will be new laws that make it harder 
to keep possession of this data. There will be increased requirements on providing transparency to customers and control over that data, which make it really difficult. Um, there will be increased penalties if you get anything wrong. There will be increased scrutiny from regulators and PR, ad, you know, privacy advocates and journalists. And so, like overall, I see it as getting more and more tricky. And so, if that's your jam, you're either you know really resourcing up to deal with it, um, or you're thinking about hopefully ways to pivot and go. Okay, really, all that matters is product sales for for the clients that I deal with. Let me go figure out how I can turn all of this into something that works for that really simply while eliminating the liability of having a huge pile of third-party acquired, you know, customer key data. What are you most excited for looking ahead in this regard? And maybe that ties back to like what you and your team are working on. What are you most excited for? Oh, so many things. We have such good signals now about whether the dollars that you have spent on advertising have translated into incremental or better or share capturing sales. And we are closer than we've ever been on telling that story simply, that the dollars that went here resulted in good outcomes. And in some places, we're doing a great job. And in other places, there's we're getting there. And that opens up the door to, if you have more dollars to spend, where should I put them? And knowing with much greater precision and fidelity, which ad products have actually been working the hardest on your behalf and how much headroom is there on each of those ad products to keep working. And so we have so much cool work going on in that space to help guide how to think about the potential left in the ad products that you're using as a client and the potential available in the ones that you may not be using and how they can all work really effectively together. I find that to be a fascinating mathematical problem, to be a fascinating transformative problem for many of our clients and how they think about you know, the utility of their budgets for marketing is really exciting time and really exciting opportunity to partner with the retail marketplaces we work with because it's in their best interest to solve this problem too. And so we 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 get so many cool features, APIs, clean room capabilities that are really pushing on how well we can do this. It's 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 awesome. I love working here because that's you know what we get to wake up and solve for every day and sort of move the needle on a little bit each day. It's awesome. We get to solve those little ad demons. Solve for <laughs> the ad demons. Last thing I have for you is that thing on your digital wish list. Did some light bulb go off? Did you have to think about it? And then I'm curious what it is and why you won't actually purchase it. Or if you're going to completely invent a product, why for that as well? Calendaring. I find like there's no good calendar. It's, I find it really frustrating. And I, I came from the exchange calendar, which is a very functional enterprise calendar system, I guess. And I've been using Google Calendar. And it's great also. But just the, just, I, I can't find a way to have one calendar for myself that incorporates a lot of different facets of my life. That It's always very fragmented, very polluted. 
and the, and the curation of it is weird. The Basecamp has a calendar that they just launched that is perhaps the closest, but I think there's still so much room to cover on just better digital calendar. I, I haven't found one that really works. Interesting. I did not, I got to say, I did not see that coming. So. <laughs> And that wraps up this episode of the Commerce Collective Podcast. I hope you've learned just so much about walled gardens, the past, present, and future of them, how we're solving for ad demons that follow you around, and that you've been inspired to invent a new all-encompassing life-guiding calendaring system. You already know this, but if you're interested in learning more about anything you heard in this episode, please do reach out because we would love to take these insights and apply them to your marketing efforts. I've been your host, Emma Irwin, and we'll see you next time. Let's try this. <clears throat> so now that we know the value of clean rooms and aggregate and aces walking by. This is fun. Oh, now Margo's going to whine. Margo, lay down. <clears throat> I was curious about why we didn't just start out measuring digital advertising effort. <laughs> and that you've been inspired to invent an. Uh, oh boy.